Welcome back to the Scottish Indie Music Podcast with Gareth Perry and Finlay MacDonald. In episode three, we were joined by Jason McPhail, a man who has played just about every role there is to play in the Scottish indie music scene. Jason spoke to us about his experiences as a musician, band manager and promoter, his friendship with big star frontman Alex Chilton, and the merits of digital streaming services. You just said something really cool and then it, and then it just all goes on. In this week's podcast, we've got none other than Jason McPhail, who is basically a bit of a legend in Scottish independent music. It's quite hard to introduce him because he is a man that's got a lot of hats, and, and I mean that literally as well. So, Jason, I'm going to just ask you, how would you describe what it is you do? I suppose I'm just somebody that's just trying not to fall through the cracks of fucking normality. <laughs> just trying to find some kind of way to kind of exist in the world, you know. You can swear all you want, by the way. It's me and Gareth working education, so it's like, we're not swearing, it's fine. Feel free to just crack ah, it. Okay. Yeah, I, just, just try not to go... Uh, too crazy, you know. It's like figure out ways of ducking and diving and try to get through this thing called life. Is that what Prince said, wasn't it? Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together to get through this yeah. thing called life. Something along these lines, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's that. Just try to get through from a A to Z. Guess you've got to make money somehow, you know. Yeah. Keep yourself yeah. entertained. Well, the first time I met you was when um, John Hogarty and I were in the BMX Bandits and we wandered into the Griffin, in the small part of the Griffin, the Griffiny, I think it was called. It was a place where a lot of people met, formed bands and all sorts of things like that. You were playing records on turntables, but I think it was radically different from any other DJ I'd heard was that you weren't playing like that music you can dance to or anything like that. The whole point was it was quiet, Actually, sad songs. The club was called Teardrops, and you were playing things like Dan Penn, and and you were playing Scott Walker. And I remember very clearly saying, "He's got Scott Four on vinyl," <laughs> which back in those days, I mean, was just incredible. You were like some kind of demigod because it had only just come out on CD, you know. Um, that, so that was amazing. I was at university, right? You know, I need to do something in my life, so she got university. And, and, and anyway, I did divinity, philosophy, and theology, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, about one year into it, I was watching the Bells Hill beat. I loved and continue to think the world of the teenage fan club in particular. And Eugene Kelly was on it, and he'd said, Well, you know, we all met in the famous Griffin Bar. And I was like, well, that's obviously what I need to do. I need to drop out of university and go and get a job in the Griffin Bar. <laughs> you know, you've got to get amongst it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you've got to get, you've got to get, you know, you've got to immerse yourself. So, so you know, I dropped out of university. By that point, I think, I think it kind of, whatever the Griffin Bar was, right, in the 80s and maybe the early 90s, it had kind of finished. I just, I just missed it. But, uh, Me and John were still anyway. going there. You were still going. Yeah, so we're playing records. That's right. And you and John came up. And I must have known who you guys were. Anyway, so, some time passed. 
And I went to see the BMX Bandits in Paisley. And I kind of hustled my way backstage. And I think I asked John to DJ at the Griffin. And I was like, well, you know, if I can, maybe that's maybe that's the way I hustle these guys and get them uh, find a way into show business. Wow. Thank you. Because you had great T-shirts, te- teardrops T-shirts, and John and I both had one each. And we were oh. we did a little bit of touring at that time, and we had to sort of like arrange between ourselves who was going to wear the teardrops T-shirt right. huh. on stage because we both wanted to wear it. You know, it was a cool that's, T-shirt. That's, that's great. I didn't know that. Thanks. Mm. The next time we kind of had any engagement, you somehow managed to get Dan Penn, legendary Memphis singer-songwriter, producer, who produced Big Star, Percy Sledge, goodness knows who else. You'd got him over to Glasgow and got us to be his backing band to play a gig and record some stuff as well, which was an um, unbelievable experience for me. And it was the first of a few, all brought on by you, which is why I can ask you to start, oh, how do you see yourself? You're kind of like a gig promoter, but also a manager, but also... I suppose, I, I mean, I wanted to be in a band. A lot of people who want to be in bands, you know, you just kind of want to get involved and you want to meet people. And, you know, it's like anybody who wants to be a musician or an artist, get a job in a bar because that's where people congregate. Yeah. And then, and everybody's going to, at some point in the evening, going to come up and want a drink. And you're going to meet everybody in the room. It's, it is the job. I suppose, you know, I just wanted to be a part of something you know and, and feel excited about something and um yeah okay right so I, I was doing the dj thing in the griffin and it became apparent i was in the wrong place mm-hmm. i had I, I had been the right place but the energy had moved elsewhere right and the energy had right. moved to the 13th note right so that's where the sex people were going yeah so i was like well we better go there and uh, when we got there we were going to do the same thing which was play records and Craig Tannock, he then owned the 13th Note and he owned Stereo and Mono and 78 and that franchise of venues. Craig, Craig was great, right? And he was like, yeah, just do your thing, right? Do whatever you want to do. But my, it was my friend Kevin Donnelly. I, I said, who who, could, who else should we get with John Hogarty and Finley DJ or whoever you said I come in? And, and he goes, who else? And I went, well, wouldn't it be amazing if we could get Dan Penny DJ? <laughs> and we had read about him in Sweet Soul Music, the Peter Gralnick book. In the book, Peter Goralnik had described him as the secret his the secret hero of that book. You know, and it was all this stuff like, oh, you know, the legend of Dan Penn demos were as great as any of the the tracks that were then subsequently cut, whether that be Percy Sledge, James Carr, Aretha Franklin, you know, Jimmy Hughes, so on and so forth. Anyway, I said to Kevin, why don't we get Dan Penn to DJ? And he said, Why would you get Dan Penn to DJ when you could get me play? Right? Wow. Of course. Right? Of course. Right? So I don't know what happened. Alcohol may have been involved. I can't remember. But for some reason, we managed to phone him in Alabama. We did it. We got there via Heavenly Records. I think it was Heavenly. We found out that it was on Sire Records in America. And we phoned Sire in New York and said, well, you know, we're from Glasgow and we really like Dan Penn to come and play at our venue. And he said, okay, we'll give you his number, right? So we, we got the number and we phoned it. I can't remember if we, got, we left him a message or whatever, but we got a phone, a phone call or his wife Linda picked up or whatever it was. And we said, would you come to Glasgow? 
you're the guy that wrote A Woman Left Lonely that Janis Joplin did a great version of. Mm-hmm. He said, well, as fate would have it, I've just released a new record on Sire, which I, was, I wasn't aware of. And I was like, wow. And he went, yeah, it's uh, the first record I made in 22 years, right? And I'm going to be in London at the Royal Festival Hall to promote this record. And it's uh, as part of a kind of singer-songwriter conference that also had Joe South, um, Vic Chestnut, Guy Clark, and the, 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 the genius that was Alan Toussaint. And he was like, come down, and if you're serious, come down with some money. You know, I come down with train tickets, maybe it was, I think it was maybe come down with train tickets and money for myself, my wife, and my mother-in-law. And we'll come to Glasgow. And so I was like, great, let's do that, right? So it, it was agreed, and we were like, this is this is phenomenal, right? And then we came off the phone, I was talking to Kevin, well, well this is going to happen, it's amazing, it's great, right? And then we realised that nobody knew who Dan was. I mean, nobody. Yeah. Nobody, there's no internet, you know. He doesn't have any records that are available. Nobody's ever heard him sing. Maybe yourself or Douglas might be like, oh, yeah, Dan Penn, did he you know do the dark end of the street? Or... Uh, do right man, do right woman, or or he'd produce, or maybe people knew he'd produced a letter for Alex, with Alex Chilton, you know. So you know, you realise that you promised somebody two thousand pounds or three thousand pounds or whatever it was we had promised them, right? Mm-hmm. And we realised that also nobody would turn up even if it was free, mm-hmm. which is right. a fucking problem, you know. Not okay. only <laughs> yeah. you know, nobody's turned up. So then we, it was sort of like, well, we need how are we going to do this? This is a fucking serious problem. So I went to bed for two days, demoralised. And then it, it kind of realised that it coincided with Tea in the Park. The first mm-hmm. Tea in the Park. And Primal Scream were playing it and we went, well, maybe, 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 maybe we could go and ask them and they could maybe be the band. Mm-hmm. The backing band. Because I, I think the, the gig was the night after Primal Scream played. So maybe they played on the Friday, they played on the Saturday. And this the, the Dan Penn gig was either Saturday or Sunday, something like that, right? And we went into Alex Nightingale, who was Annie Nightingale's son, who was their manager at the time. We said that, that, would you be the band? And we thought, well, maybe we can sell the tickets on the back of the fact that Primal Scream are the band, right? Yeah. And they, they decided that they didn't want to do it. But I think they had got it wrong. I think Alex had got it wrong. I think he'd said, he thought, we had said, do you want, do Primal Scream want to support? Dan Penn in a pub in Glasgow, and they were like, as much as we like Dan Penn, we don't want to support them. You know? And they were like, we'll, we'll come. <laughs> so we were like, okay, well, at least that's 10 tickets sold. <laughs> uh, but at that point, I know, and I got to know Douglas. That's what it was, right? Because I'd met Douglas backstage at that gig in Paisley. Mm-hmm. And I maybe phoned Douglas and said, yeah, you know, I'm trying to figure this out. And he said, well, we could be the band. And I went, really? How do you put on a gig? <laughs> <laughs> I've never done it. I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, speak to this guy called Stuart Cruikshank and Stuart will sort it out. And, and so by hook or crook, you know, we sold the the 100 or the 200 tickets or whatever it was, you know. And it had a lot to do with you guys, the BMX bandits. I think the tickets had sold in the fact that it was the BMX bandits. Mm-hmm. And then everybody was trying to figure out who Dan Penn was at that point. Well, it was, it was definitely <laughs> rammed. I remember the show being totally rammed. And I remember Bobby yeah. Gillespie being there very clearly. He was going up and ingratiating himself to Dan. Was he? Yeah. Yeah, the funny thing about them was they, they, they said, okay, we're going, <laughs> we're going to come. And I was like, okay, well, that's 10 tickets sold, right? And my friend Kevin was in the door. And it didn't make any money. 
you know, broke even, you know, I don't even, I think we maybe paid you guys 50 quid for a van or something, right? So you didn't get paid and all the money had gone to Dan and I basically said, we'll make, we'll give you every penny that's made on the door, right? We won't make any money, right? So, so I can't remember what it was, whether it was like 1,400 pounds, a thousand pounds or whatever it was, but we agreed to pay them, right? And um, Bobby and Andrew and Robert and um, their entourage all walked in and didn't pay which becomes a problem when 10 people don't pay. And, yeah. you know, they get 100, 100 people at the show or 200 people at the show. Right? And I was like, Kevin, what the fuck? What the fuck? And he's like, yeah, they just kind of like, it was like they just walked in. And it was like, I didn't know. And it was like, they didn't, they didn't think they needed to pay. And I was like, they need to pay. They need to pay. And then he was like, right, okay, well, I screwed up. I'll pay for it personally. And I was like, no, you can't fucking do that. You're not paying for it personally. But let me figure this out. So I saw Bobby and I went up and said, Bob, listen, you guys were really meant to pay, you know? And he's like, all right, man, right, sorry, all right, okay. Speak to Alex and Alex will sort it. And I was like, oh, all right, okay, right. So I got me out to Nightingale and I'm like, Alex, Bob said that you'll sort this. And he looked at me and he went, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you've all just walked in and it's like, we're not making any money here and it's, we need to pay this guy. We're, I'm not buying your ticket because you just played Tina Park last night. And he's like, so what do you want me to do? And I was like, well, why do you pay? And he went, I don't have any money. And I was like, well, I went, there's an ATM across the road. So he he kind of went out and watched him go across to the ATM at Glasgow Street, right? And he sat and he looked at the machine. At which point he jumped up and he karate kicked the fucking machine. He just jumped on, kicked the machine. <laughs> I was like, what? And then he just walked off. And I was like, damn. So anyway, so I go back to Bob and I'm like, Bob, yeah, Alex just went out and tried to kick an ATM machine and he walked into the night. I was like, well, can you just pay? And he was like, I went to the tickets. And I was like, just say they were £10. I was like, they're £10, right? And he's like, right. So he's kind of rummaging through his pocket. And he went, and I went, this place is like round full of people, right? You've got 10 of your friends. I really need to go around them all trying to get £10 off of everybody. And I'm like, because it's going to ruin my night. And he was like, right. And I was like, so can you just pay for your pals? And he was like, <laughs> right, how many of them? And I was like, there's 10 of you. And he's like, right. And he could see him trying to do the mental math, right? And he's like, <laughs> right. And there was some random person standing next door, next to me, and he went, leaned over, and I'll be 100 pounds. And he was like, right. <laughs> I got 100 pounds out of Bobby. That was that. <laughs> absolutely that was amazing i did not expect that at all you've just described the finley where you first got involved in in music but i wanted to know what you were like as a younger person as maybe in your childhood and as a teenager and what kind of influences where your your love of music came from and who were your heroes at that time as well so maybe younger heroes, so people that had a very early impression on you and then how that developed throughout your teenage years and beyond as well. On reflection, I'd always been around music because my dad played a lot of music in the house, you know, and things like, you know, I can't remember, four years old and like put on the Muppets, which is still a great record. And the first couple of Beatles albums, you know, just like everybody else, you know, had them, you know, the, two, the red and blue Beatles albums in my bedroom, there was a, a, a dresser, you know, with a mirror in it. And there was a little kind of glass shelf at the back. 
in my mind when I was five years old, that was a drum riser. So I'd somehow managed to make like a drum kit and had like a little kind of toys and like, you know, like Ringo Starr and all that kind of business. You kind of went from there to Adam Ant. I really like local and the commotions. I'd gone to see Simple Minds at Ibrooks. It was the first gig I ever went to in 1986, 85, 86. Simple Minds had played Ibrooks in the back of that massive selling record once upon a time. And I, I must have liked them, and my dad took me. And the support bands were like the cult and um, like Cone Commotions and the Water Boys. And so it was quite exciting, you know. So I went out and bought Fisherman's Blues by the Water Boys and um, Lloyd Cone Commotions records. And I remember being really, really excited about mainstream coming out because they played songs from mainstream, but I don't know if those records particularly hold up, but it was something really exciting about Lloyd Cole, I think. I totally loved Lloyd Cole and the Commotions. I had uh, Rattlesnakes on one side of a cassette and the Smiths' first album on the other side of a cassette, both taped off my cousin. You know when you put two cassette players together, you press yeah, record yeah. on one and the mic gets picked up by the speaker? God. So that, that was how I had these two. I'll never forget having that cassette was a very, very special thing to me. Yeah. I love Rattlesnakes to this day. It's a classic. I don't think I really thought of as being a cool band. You know, not in the way that Orange just or like Joseph K or any of that stuff that people kind of think, oh, that's cool. In a, in a lot of ways, I think they're more kind of like piled in with things like Love and Money. And, um, but maybe like Delamitri is maybe more that than... You know, the, the postcard thing. Uh-huh. Probably well, they had strings on, on the first album, didn't they? They had a string yeah. section, which was amazing like, and so well done. But it was it was quite a mainstream sound, which was a bit different from the yeah. kind of indie postcard thing, wasn't it? Two, two kind of godlike characters, Stuart Murdoch, right? Mm-hmm. And Lawrence from Felt. You know, if they say they like something, it's like, how oh, are people going to listen, right? Yeah. In 1996, 1997, I was in the... The Grosvenor Cafe, and I met Stuart. I can't remember if I knew. I must have, I think I did know him at this point. And I said, what have we been doing? And he said, I'm, I'm trying to get a band together. And, I, and I've just been around putting up wanted ads looking for musicians. And he went, yeah, I went to Lost in Music, you know, and then um, various other retail establishments and tried to, you know, put up a little thing saying musicians wanted. And I said, okay. And I said, Can you show me your thing. And I said, what, what, what's your influences? Mm-hmm. And it just said rattlesnakes. <laughs> I was like, it just said snakes, and I was like, okay. And I was like, I was yeah. like, well, that's kind of interesting, right? So that was actually for Stuart rattlesnakes. Probably people don't know that about Stuart, right? And I was like, well, that's great, right? Years down the line, I was with Lawrence from Felt. Yeah, I don't know how it came up, but it did, right? And we were talking about it would have been about producers, right? And I was like, well, who, who would you like to produce a record? And I went, no, no, I wouldn't want to produce it. I didn't want anybody to produce my records. No, no. Apart from Paul Hardyman. And I was like, Paul Hardyman? And he went, yeah. And I went, what did he do again? And he went, Rattlesnakes by Lloyd Cole Commotions and Lloyd Cole's solo album. And he loved Rattlesnakes. Uh-huh. Lawrence loved Rattlesnakes even more than he loved Rattlesnakes. He loved the first solo Lloyd Cole record. And he was almost like, if I was ever going, if anybody was going to give me a budget to do something, it would be Paul Hardyman. Paul Hardyman probably hasn't made a record since 1991. He said, yeah, when we saw Lloyd Cole on Top of Pops doing Perfect Skin, it was a, a kind of road to Damascus moment. And he said he knew that Felt needed to up their game. And he says, we needed to up our game and we needed something that was going to allow us to compete. Because he, he saw Lloyd Cole as, his, as, as the kind of place that he thought that's where we've got to be. We've got to be that good. And we've got to be 
sophisticated. And he said that was the point at which he haven't seen Blair Cowan play the Hammond organ. Right. right. Wow. Uh-huh. We need a Hammond organ player. And enter Martin Duffy. So Martin Duffy came into felt on the back of the fact that he felt that felt needed to be doing something similar to Lloyd Cohen commotions. I don't That's think people amazing. know that. That's amazing. Felt are considered the, the most ultra cool 80s indie band ever. And it's partly to do with the fact that they never really got the success they deserved and stuff. But another thing that I think there was a time when Lawrence, you were working with Lawrence for that go-kart Mozart gig in the Poetry Club a few years back. And I, I don't know, somebody said, it may have been you, he was really into the Win album. In fact, it was yeah. his Q&A. He did a Q&A and he said, he was he, he noted, you know, like Win, the album by Win. Uh, it, was a, it was a really big album. It was like used on adverts and everything. But that was another one that surprised me. Yeah, so yeah, I think it was big in Scotland. I don't know if it was big in England. I think it was right. one of those records, knowing the back of the, the fact that, I mean, it's tenants. Well, so, I associate that with like, major corporation stuff. Uh, sure. And I was surprised that he really rated the uh, win so much, you know. I know, okay. I know like David Henderson came from the fire engines and, and all that sort of stuff, but yeah. David did the interview that night, which was a car crash. A wee, a wee bit, yeah, I remember that, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of more about Davy than it was about Lawrence. Yeah, it made it probably was you know, which is kind of like, well, what fucking, what were we fucking expecting? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But like, it was kind of amusing, you know. Yeah. But I, yeah, I really like Lawrence. I really like Go Cut Motes a lot. Me too. Me too. Just, yeah. I don't care about Felt. I do love Felt. I have to say, I, I think they're a spectacular band and, and I still really love them. I really like Go Cut Motes. Really, that show was incredible. It was just dynamite. It was. It fucking was. Can I give you a wee bit of insight into that gig, right? Uh-huh. See when we'd arranged to do it, right? Between a green, the gig and the gig happening, his guitar player fell by the wayside. And he was like, oh, my guitar player's fell by it. I don't know what I'm going to do. We could do the gig. And I was like, why the fuck do you need a guitar player? Do you need a guitar player? You know, and it was like, incredible because I thought that was a conscious decision. I thought that was the whole thing. We go cut Mozart, they just didn't have guitars, and it was like a really no, conscious thing. It was one of these things that, like, on record, sure, right? But when they were out playing live, it kind of did what most people do. You know, it was like, oh, well, we'll need some guy playing a Les Paul playing like Steve Jones. And it's always horrible. It's never good. That chugging Les Paul thing, you know. Mm-hmm. I was quite happy with myself because I was, I was like, I would like to hear this without the chugging Les Paul. I didn't know I'd that work. was you and that was your decision. That is fantastic. I'm really weird about guitar players. I don't really like guitar players. So, I mean, for a start, that rhythm section is phenomenal. That guy, Rustin Ralph. Rustin Ralph. I mean, you can make it up, right? And Terry is such a great keyboard player. I mean, they don't need a guitar player. I mean, he's, you know, his hands are all over the place. He's like mm. Rick Wakeman, you know? And then you just allowed the songs to shine through without that kind of jig, 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 j
So I just wanted to ask you a bit about that. First of all, which bands you managed, if there's any that you maybe think didn't quite get to the level they deserved as well. But also, I know you've secured a number of record deals for bands as well. What's your approach to that? Like, what do you think they look for when you're approaching a label? How do you sell the band? Turn up ready. Turn up, it's, it's turn up ready, you know? It's like one of the problems, I think, with like the internet and social media and all that kind of stuff is kids are so fucking eager just to get their shit out there. And it's usually shit, you know? It's just, and it's, just, it's very difficult to say to people, this stuff you're doing is no good. Stop. Get better. And in a way, you know, that was, that, that was an advantage to, I think, putting records out pre-internet. You know, nobody saw you do your dirty work in public. And also, you know, if, you were, if you're privileged enough to get, like, the backing of a record label, and some level, if we're going to give you money, they get involved. And that's maybe not such a bad thing. Because I've done it before, with varying degrees of success, they can give you some kind of like, well, what, you know, you've, you've working with Paul Hardiman or whoever it is, you know. But anyway, the point is, you know, it's like you just hear the people and they're like, oh, you know, it's hard, it's hard. You're like, well, fuck off and do something else. Then you're obviously not meant to do this, you know. Yeah, it's hard. It's meant to be hard. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an incredibly competitive environment, you know? It's an incredibly competitive environment. You know, and it's like, uh, oh, you know, nobody's getting record deals. Yes, they are. It's harder for us now than it was for you. And you're like, no, it's not. Being real about it, you know, it's like, when, when I put records out with Domino, like, 20 years ago, they had a, that, the year that we put records out, the company had a turnover of a million pounds for the first time. They've now got a turnover of 70 million pounds. <laughs> they're thriving. They're all still there. You know, they're yeah. all still drawing wage. They're constantly being told there's no money in the record industry anymore. It's, it's nonsense. If there's no money in the record business, why are Rough Trade Records still in business? Why are Domino's thriving if there's, if there's no money in the... Of course there's fucking money in the music business. These people are doing well. And they're selling records or they're selling music. It's just a nonsense. It's kind of an excuse for people who just can't get it together. <laughs> you know, is it competitive? Yeah. You know, but are, yeah, of course fucking people are still getting record deals. You know, that's so, a great thing. I mean, okay, that's an interesting point you're on there because there's a lot of talk right now about how Spotify and some others are ripping everybody off. And some people think, well, it's the record companies are ripping everybody off or it's Spotify that's ripping everybody off. Is MD written MD off, or is it just the same as it always was? <laughs> my, my feeling is that it's probably just as it always was. There's people, you know, who are probably making tons of money. There's probably people who are not making as much money as they should be making. And, you know, I don't want to be negative about it. It's fine, you know, but it's just like, they're not your friends, that's for sure. If you're signing a record deal with somebody and you're shitting, shaking your hands and they buy a bottle of champagne to make you feel special... And the moment, the minute you're signing that contract, there's somebody in the back room who's been instructed to fuck you as many ways as they possibly can to make sure that they don't pay you. But it's okay. <laughs> it's, like, it's fine. You know, it's like, what does it matter? Yeah. You know, is it going to stop you from doing it? If you want to do it, you just do it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you might make some money, you might not make money. It's life. Well, well, that's a good uh, contribution to the ongoing debate on that front, I think. The band I wish I had worked with, right? 
and I didn't push hard enough for it, and I should have because not only did I get it banned, but I made tons of money. It was Vampire Weekend. Mm-hmm. They turned up ready. That was that was an amazing thing to watch. Some of the you know some of these kind of made records and some of these managed bands they were just phenomenal. Mm. They just turned up. They had a record that was ready. It was finished. They had promoted it themselves. They had taken advantage of MySpace and all of that kind of business and created a an excitement around themselves. They were they would look great photographs. But most importantly, they had a great record. It doesn't happen very often, you know. It's like. Yeah. Um, well, Franz Ferdinand were another one like that, weren't they? They made their album completely bang before they'd signed no, no, a deal or anything. I mean, I've known Alex a long time and we worked together on, we worked together on 13th Note, actually, behind the bar. Um, we had a studio together at one point. Alex, again, Alex turned up ready, but he had had a record contract and it, it hadn't worked out. Yeah. So it was his second shot at it. He just got it right. He's really industrious. He knew how it worked. It was the right, the right thing at the right time and all that kind of business. And they've made a couple of really, really amazing singles. Now, just to go back to that one, can you maybe just say some of the other bands that you've worked with as well over the years? I suppose the first band I managed was, was my own. Was it yeah. B-Twin? Yeah. 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 Somehow managed to kind of squeak it through and get somebody to give us some money to do a thing and, and fucked it up. Which is fine. <laughs> and then Michael, who was the drummer in my band, ended up he he ended up getting a fun band together. And that fun band that became apparent were pretty good, really good actually. And uh, I was working with Alan McGee very, very briefly. And he didn't want to sign them. And uh and Jeff Travis did. And they sent a rough trade really quickly for a quite a That's lot of the nineteen nineties you're talking about there, Jason. You know, I was like, well, this is kind of fun too, you know. Mm-hmm. Andrew Oldham who I'd spent some time with, he was like, so how are you enjoying uh, managing bands? And I was like, well, what's the fucking difference being in a band managing bands? It's ultimately the same thing. And he was like, thank you for saying that. Because <laughs> it's, you know, it's, uh, it's fun. And then I ended up managing a French band called The Teenagers, who were great. They were really, really, really great. And then worked with a couple of bands, CSS, I kind of worked, was involved with the Amazing Snake Kids. And um I think if there's anybody else. Then Royal Trucks. Event, and then finally Royal Trucks. I mean, it's like, that's 10 podcasts in itself, right? It's like, <laughs> after 19 years of not speaking to each other, that's Jennifer Neal as, as, a, as a couple who had divorced and somebody had offered them $60,000 to do a gig and they were like, what, $60,000? And somebody said, well, it's all about the money now. And I was like, well, it's always been about the money with those guys. And anyway... They got it together and they had an American manager, this guy called Paul Bean, who's based in Malibu. And I was like, okay, well, Paul's doing it. And uh, I was speaking to Jennifer, and I think, I, I don't really know what happened, but she came and she said, would you manage the band in Europe? And I was like, okay. Not really expecting anything, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And then it became apparent that one day she just got in touch and said, by the way, we're firing Paul. And I was like, oh. <laughs> right no I haven't met Paul you know it's like Skype phone calls you know I was like why firing him she's like I don't know he's needy <laughs> yeah, okay <laughs> so I was like right so it was just kind of skullduggery which is kind of it's quite fascinating to watch you know kind of ugly but kind of still fascinating you know and uh, so Paul was Paul was on his way out and the record label were just fucking insane 
There was nobody involved in the project that was remotely fucking approaching anything near sanity. Nobody. Everybody was fucking genuinely certifiable. You know, I still genuinely believe they are the greatest band since the Velvet Underground. You know, there's nobody mm-hmm. really pushed the possibilities of what that that particular art form is more than Royal Trucks, mm-hmm. rock and roll, which is something that doesn't really exist anymore. They somehow managed to kind of wring something out of a cloth that dried up a long time ago, you know? They've got that kind of thing that the New York Dolls have got, and I suppose the Velvet Underground Lou Reed thing, where it just seems it's genuine and it's coming directly out of their, you know, out of, the, out of their soul or something. No, but, it's but madness. Is it complete artifice? I don't know. Yeah, it is. It is, it is, it is complete artifice, and it's also, I mean, Neil is, is the greatest guitar player of his generation, according to Jay Mascus. Now, we know that guy's a good guitar player, Jay Mascus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing, right? When, when we were making the record, what became the last Royal Truck, the last Royal Trucks record right when we were in Los Angeles. And, uh, I, you know, I've been in recording studios, you know, whether it be like, you know, four tracks or like smaller setups, bigger setups, being in Abbey Road, you know, little mountain studios were like on the desk that Aerosmith recorded on. My point is, yeah, I kind of get studios and I've been in various kind of studio setups, right? It's the only time in my life I've ever been in a studio and had no fucking concept of what was going on. The first couple of days was really great. And then Jennifer turned around one day and she said, oh, by the way, um, Kim Gordon and Jay Mascus are coming by tomorrow or the day after. And I was like, to hang out? And she was like, no, no, they're coming. They're going to kind of like put some stuff down in the record. She went, yeah, Jay's really excited because he's like, Neil, she's like, Neil's the greatest guitar player. Jay just, it's like, nobody's greater than Neil, right? Mm. And I'm like, well, that's true. But curiosity, what's, what's, Kim Gordon, then she went, oh, Kim's just wanting to hang out. <laughs> we'll get her to do something. We'll, she'll do something. I don't know what. We'll give her some backing vocals to do or something, right? Mm-hmm. And I, was like, I was just kind of sitting there and like going, that sounds stupid. Why the fuck would you put Kim Gordon on this record? And out of curiosity, why would you put Jay Mascus on it? And she was like, well, Jay's like, you know, Jay just likes Neil. <laughs> and I was like, how does Neil feel about it? And she's like, he goes, Neil doesn't care. Surely if you put Jay Mascus on this record, that's just less Neil. You know, it's like, if you're not adding your detracting, so why have Jay Mascus on this record? What's the point? Surely the thing you want on it's just more Royal Trucks. And she was like, you know what, you're right. <laughs> so in that moment, Jay Mascus was taken off the record and so was uh, Kim Gordon. And you go, you go, good. Absolutely brilliant. I'm just so impressed, think- Jason, that you were able to go in there uh, with uh, balls of steel like that, I could never, <laughs> I could never say something like that to somebody like that. You know, honestly, I don't think I could. I wanted to ask you. I think we need to talk about Alex Chilton at some point in this conversation. You got Teenage Fan Club to back up Alex Chilton in the thirteenth note, and then you became basically lifelong friends with Alex, didn't you? He came over and a lot after that. You went over to New Orleans. What was your kind of um? overriding memory what was your best sort of uh, memory of Alex that's that's maybe the best question I can ask about that can I ask you a question first when did you first meet him did you have a flat in Ruskin Terrace yeah yeah that I've, well that's my kind of big Alex Chilton story it was um, when Big Star 
reformed '93, and they played the QM Union. Somebody got BMX Bandits to support them, and Alex and 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 the guys from the Posies, and they, they they put together a band to to do to do the big star stuff, and it was absolutely incredible. They were they were brilliant. You probably remember seeing them. Yeah, I was at that gig. Yeah, yeah. Right. And that was amazing. But what really amazing after that was like, I, I lived in Ruskin Terrace, which is like, I know you lived in Ruskin Terrace uh, or thereabouts uh, not long after that as well. You, but they got these amazing the big front rooms and that. We swapped rooms and I was in the big front rooms. I was like, we can, we can get people back to my flat. It's not far. Got a big front room. It's a nice place. Alex came back. The Posies came back. BMX bandits, but then also <laughs> half of Glasgow seemed to come back as well. And um, there's a lot of things I could say about that night. But Alex played some songs on the guitar and sang the most incredible version of This Guy's in Love With You I've ever heard, oh, which, like, sure. how they describe it is charisma, incredible charisma when he performed. And sitting right next to him like that was, was amazing. And it was so dynamic the way he performed it as well. Mm. But that was cool. And also, one of my memories of that night was uh, Joe McAlinden said near the end of the night, once most people had left, he goes, uh, see, when you have a party, you know, what I would usually do is just sort of invite a few people back, you know, not like everybody. <laughs> and then Alex asked Joe, when were you born? And Joe said whatever it was. And he went, you're a fire horse, you know. Because right. Alex was really into astrology and he was into Chinese astrology and everything. And that's what he said. Well, you, that's typical. That's a, that's a fire horse would say. Yeah. I remember once asking him about that, right? And it, it, there was this book. I'm trying to remember the name of the book. I think, it's, I think it's called Sacred Symbols of the Ancients. And it's a book whereby, you know, every birth date correlates to a card in a deck of cards, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm the 5th of October, which would make me a four of diamonds, right? I can't remember what his card was, but he knew the, the relationships between all the cards and all of that kind of stuff and whether you were compatible or not so much so. I remember one saying, I went, I'm not usually that eloquent, right? But it was one of those moments where I just managed to kind of like say what I wanted to say without being so fucking woolly, right? I said, it's not like you you live by this. It's just you just use it as a kind of as a loose guide to navigate people. And he went, yeah. But he wasn't, yeah. And he would do that weird thing whereby if you were like a, I don't know, if a seven of clubs or a two of that spades or whatever it was, he'd be like, you and I are not going to get on. And it was weird to me, man, right? Because in a lot of ways, like, he'd be so down to earth. Mm. And I always think Alex has been a really grounded person. Mm -hmm. Incredibly grounded, very, very precise, very practical, and not particularly ethereal. But then he had this, this thing that, that he would fuck around with, you know? Uh-huh. I think I was quite lucky that I, I got in home during probably what were the, the happiest years of his life. Yeah. Right. So that was cool. Yeah. You know, you know, and yeah, it's like, kind of, uh, it's, he'd come back, he'd got rid of his kind of financial worries and, and all that kind of stuff, hadn't he? And he, he knew, uh, did he get married at yeah. that point? 
No, not at that point. But he'd managed to kind of stabilise a lot of stuff in his life. Do you know what I mean? And he wasn't drinking, which is great, and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. And he had a house that he liked, and he had a career that worked for him, you know. He just kind of knew how to kind of, like, navigate. And he kind of really had a good handle in what life was about, I think. You know, I kind of... I mean, he was a deeply, deeply, deeply strange dude, you know. But at the same time, that's all right. Yeah. It seems to me like he would say exactly what he thought, didn't he? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think for the most part that's true, you know. And he would just be so to the point. And when you realise it's not, it wasn't really meant with any kind of sense of badness, he just, you know, he'd go take it personally or whatever it was. I'm sure I pissed him off at various points. I know I did, but, you know, he probably pissed me off a couple of times as well, you know. But he's probably the person I miss more than anybody else. Mm. And I don't particularly miss him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, apart from the fact, you know, the first time I met him was at that gig that you, that you were talking about, the... the, the the QMU gig because after that I was you know I was a kid when I would get my, my concert ticket signed remember one time he phoned me up right and he was fucking clearly stoned right mm-hmm. I pick up the phone right and I'm like hello and then he's like there's a lull and he went hey and I went alright how's it going and then there's a lull not bad and I was like oh, that's good And he's like, how are you? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm really good. Thank you. Right. So what have you been up to? Nah, a whole bunch of nothing. Right? And I was like, okay. And then I was a lull, right? And I was like, he's stoned. He's been smoking too much grass, right? And I just thought, I don't want to fucking work too hard on this call. I don't want to work too hard. And I went, <laughs> it's fucking a long time, right? And I was like, I'm not doing this, man, right? I'm not fucking you phone me. You know, so I was like, and it was like a fucking 20 second lull, which is a long time. And eventually it was like, right. So we'll pick this up another time. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's pick it up another time. Do you know what I mean? It's just like, fucking hell, man. <laughs> but, but, you know, but for the most part, it wasn't like that, you know. But, you, you know, it was really fun. I remember one time he phoned me up and it was like, it was like nine in the morning, right? And I picked up the phone and he was like, is it 9 a.m.? And I was like, yeah, it is. And he went, you know, I've been up all night and I've, I didn't want to phone you too early in the morning. So I've been up all night. Uh, just went to call you and I was like, all right, okay. He goes, can you talk? And I went, yeah, 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 I can talk. It's fine, I can talk. Oh, I'm just waking up while you're talking to me, right? It's 9 a.m. And he went, he goes, oh, do you know the, the, the soul singer Billy Ocean? And I went, yeah. yeah I know Billy Ocean. Not personally. <laughs> but yeah, I know Billy Ocean. And he went, yeah. He goes, I heard uh, the song, you know, it's like, he's great. And I was like, yeah. And he went, do you know the song Love Really Hurts Without You? And I was like, yeah. And he went, it's so great. Okay, hold on, right? And he goes away, and then he gets the guitar, and he goes, and he's drumming in the guitar, right? 
And he goes, you're going around town like a fool and you think that it's groovy. You're giving it to some of a guy that gives you the eye. You don't give nothing to me. And then he goes, you don't give nothing to me. And then you just like busted hysterics. <laughs> and I was just like, <laughs> I was like, uh, and he's like, Okay, listen. And it goes away again. And it goes. You run around town like a fool, and you think that it's groovy. You're giving it to some other guy who gives you the eye. You don't give nothing to me. And then he would bust into hysterics again. He goes. He goes. You don't give nothing to me. And I was like, which <laughs> point I start I start laughing, and I'm like, yeah. And he goes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> we wish why I was in fucking aesthetics as well. And I'm like, yeah, that's a great song. <laughs> that's all that's all the phone call was. Amazing. Which was Amazing. fun. I did the same, I remember having up one time, right, from a recording studio. We'd watch the hard they come, the Jimmy Cliff film together. Mm-hmm. Everything about it's just fucking incredible, right? And we were, we'd watched it together and we were smoking grass, right? And it was like fucking hilarious. It's an amazing film, right? And my dad phoned him up. And I was like, listen, man, I just like heard this really elite Jimmy Cliff track. I just want to sing it down the phone. And he was like, go, go. It's, uh, it goes like this. Yo, mama, is Jamaica. Yo, mama, is Jamaica. Yo, mama, is Jamaica. I'm crowning you myself. Right? And he was going, I'm crowning you myself. <laughs> and then I put them in one, and that was the way it worked, you know. Sorry, I'm getting the impression that this, these were like, he felt that these were just amazing payoff lines in a song. That's so amazing. I wish I'd written that. Something like, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I kind of get it. You know, he was of opinion. He was just like, I'm Big Star are not a great band. Don't be silly. I can't have this stupid conversation with you. Uh-huh. I mean, sure. I mean, he did recognise it was the band that he'd been, but, been in. But I think he was also like, look, if we're going to have a conversation about music, which I'm happy to do, let's have one that's based on something approaching reality. The Beach Boys are a great band. If we want to talk about music, let's talk about the Beach Boys, but I can't really have this nonsense conversation that Big Star were a great band because they weren't. Mm-hmm. And, and he was right. They weren't a great band, I don't think. A lot of people, including myself, went really over the top about them, but it was partly because they didn't get the recognition in their lifetime at all. That, that anywhere near that should have got. So that just inflates them in people's imagination beyond how good they actually were, you know. Those records are narcissistic records. Mm. I think he was like kind of embarrassed by them from that point of view it's just like well that's what it is you know it's like records and they're not particularly good I'm unhappy records whereas like Flies and Share but he was like that's a, that, it, it could go that was a good record he knows what that was a good record and he will but that wasn't a good record you know, he knew mm. what wasn't good I think he thought September Girls was a good record and he thought In the Street was a good record as far as I remember, but the rest of them, he was writing off a lot of songs. Just thinking, nah, it was just wasn't very good. Can you remember what he thought of September Girls? Does he think it's as good as everybody else thinks it is? No, I think he thought it was good. I don't think he thought it was as good as everybody else thought it was. You know, I mean, I think he probably thought Hey Little Child was a better record, or like Bangkok was a better record, or uh-huh. um, My Rival was a better record, or Rock Hard was a better record. You know, I was that thinking was about No Sex the other day there because I played it on. I had this radio show on Celtic Music Radio and I played it and then I, re- I forgot 
that it's got a big, massive swear word in the middle of it. I allowed the episode quite again a few weeks later, completely forgetting. But it shows I obviously had no audience because I didn't get any complaints about it at all. But there's a line and it goes like, hey, baby, fuck me and die. But the thing I was thinking about that record is it was all about AIDS, wasn't it? And it was quite Talk ahead of the curve. Nobody was writing about that at the time he wrote it. Yeah, I mean, he was kind of, you know, a contrarian. He was kind of fearless. And he also thought it was, part of him probably thought it would be a hit because it was topical. Yeah. Who fucking knows? Do you know what I mean? But it's like, I, don't, I know they didn't really like that record very much. There's a lot of talk about the AIDS thing because of that. It's a sin that's been on recently, which is brilliant. How nobody was talking about AIDS, apart from the gay community, until people started to realise that it was affected everybody else as well. But I just thought it was kind of cool that Alex wrote a song about it, you know? I can't think about him a lot, you know? I can't tell you my favourite Alex story, right? Mm-hmm. Five years after he died, I was in his house in New Orleans. I just went over... It's a great city, right? It wasn't strange being in his house, having the keys and just being there and riding his bike, going around the, the city, you know, using a kettle, sleeping in his bed, you know. One day I was kind of like just standing on the porch, right? And it was a very, it was a weird thing happened, right? It was a helicopter flew down the street really low. And it was a, it was a civilian helicopter and the door was open, the gate, the side door was open, right? And there was just somebody hanging off, fucking sitting on the edge of the helicopter, with their legs dangling out of the helicopter. And there was a boombox playing music, playing like New Orleans hip hop, right? I don't know if it was like um, Lil Wayne or somebody who fucking knows, right? It was weird as fuck, right? And there was this kid across the way, and he was brushing out his stoop, he's brushing the porch out. And we kind of made eye contact, and we both looked at each other. And that was it. Anyway, but an hour later or something like that, Laura, Alex's wife, shouted over to the kid and she went, how you doing, Damien? And he waved over and he came over. And I was like, that helicopter thing was so fucking nuts. And he was like, yeah, that was really weird, right? So we started talking. And um, it's in Treme, which is a kind of... Treme is supposedly the birthplace of jazz. Supposedly, uh, Dr. John was born there, Louis Prima and all these people. Anyway, the kid was like, all right, did you know Mr. Alex? And they all called him Mr. Alex because they all had this kind of respect for him, right? Uh, and he's like, oh, you knew Mr. Alex? And I said, yeah. And he, he goes, yeah, really, Mr. Alex, you know, I miss him. I think he was a musician. And I went, yeah, he was a musician. She goes, yeah, he goes, I think because I would see him, he would have a guitar case, you know, I think he was a musician. We used to hang out. And I was like, oh, that's great. He goes, yeah, when I was a kid, or like 11 or 12 years old or whatever, he goes, he used to come over and bring around some some Coca-Cola and we would sit in the back porch and he would fix the punctures on my bike. That's <laughs> like, what a fucking cool guy. Yeah. I, I don't know. It wasn't like he was sitting going, by the way, I'm, I'm this guy that was in this famous band, you know, he just, he just was like, do you want to have a Coke? You get some punctures I can fix in your bike. Wow. Wow. And that was wow. his thing. And that, and, and, and that was why he was fucking cool. That's why he was really great. Yeah. Yeah, and you know that, that was it. You know, and he just had this fucking incredible ability to just be with people. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And he also found it very difficult to be with people, but when he wanted, when he could be with people, he was really great at it. And it was always just this very kind of like, um, "What do you do? Tell me about your stories." You know, and you know, and Laura would say, you know, he was forever just stopping and talking to people that were homeless or whatever it was, and giving them money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He just kind of got it, you know. Yeah. 
There's one thing I just wanted to ask you as well, Jason, about kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier on about we got into Spotify for a minute there. Now, especially amongst my friends, there's a bit of a taboo about Spotify and almost a bit of a guilt about using it. But I know from speaking to you, and I, I agree with you actually, that it's the now, it's the future. We've got to embrace it somehow and find a way to make it work. How do you see it working going forward? Spotify? Or just, not, not Spotify in particular, but streaming services. Streaming. I mean, fucking thank God for streaming services. You know, thank God it happened. I mean, historically, major record labels have always been very, very reluctant to kind of like get with what's coming next. You know, they always fight what's coming next. Radio, radio, fuck no, radio is going to... Radio's going to ruin everything, you know, or, or cassettes are going to ruin everything, you know, or, you know, home taping's going to ruin everything, you know. It doesn't. It's, 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 it's a capitalist business. I like that. I mean, I consider myself a socialist, but, I mean, if you're going to be a capitalist, be a capitalist and do it right, and it, it is pure fucking capitalism, you know. It eventually just finds a way and, you know, fights against stuff. And But behind the problem was these people, they, they were just like, we're making all this money. We don't want to we stop selling CDs in the 90s when it was, it was so, the music business was doing so well. And they were like, what the fuck do we do? You know, and it's just like, well, it's here. So they were so slow to embrace it and to figure it out and to monetize it. I think Napster, kids get used to getting music for free. Because the record business just never learns its fucking lessons. And there's like, no, no, we'll, we'll sue these kids and we'll do this and we'll do that. You can't fight this stuff. It's just, it's like trying to put, push fucking treacle up a hill. You can't do it. And also, you did it right. You know, it's just like, make it easy for people. How, how does it work? Make it easy for people. You know, put it on their phones, put it on their, I don't miss records. Who the fuck wants to use records? Yeah, you know I mean? I'm not a record person. Yeah. I know you've spoken about that before, about the environmental impact of all these vinyl records that are being pressed as well. It's not, it's not like I really care about it, but it's just like, oddly enough, it, I can go back to Alex with that one. The last time I bought a record was 1996. 96, yeah. 25 years ago. It was the only way you could get a copy, a, a copy of the, the record with the soul singer Oscar, Oscar Tony Jr., right? I mean, Alex came over and he was like, my God, you've got Oscar Tony Jr., it's the same band that played in all the box stops. It's the same band that played in Dusty in Memphis, right? Wow. It's American. It was made at American Studios in Memphis. So it's got the same band. Tommy Cog, Bill plays bass, and Reggie Young plays guitar. Gene Christman plays drums. Same as Son of a Preacher Man, right? Same as Cry Like a Baby. Same as uh, Sweet Caroline by Neil Diamond. Same as Suspicious Minds by Elvis. It's the same band, right? Yeah. And Oscar had made this record... Box Arts was Studio A, the Oscar was in Studio B. You only made one record, and it's probably the best soul record I can think of, Southern soul record I can think of, because soul records are generally patchy. And it does a great version of the Dark End of the Street on it. It's, it's not as good as the James Carr version, but it's, it's a good one. Alex was like, well, that's fucking Oscar Tony Jr., right? And he was really jazzed about this, and he was like, how the fuck do you have this record? And I was like, I don't know. And Sarah had the record, Martin had the record as well. And I think he found it funny that we had this record, Oscar Tony Jr. for Your Precious Love. Anyway, weirdly, the record I had was signed by Oscar. I don't know how that happened. I had a signed copy of this record, but I did. And anyway, at the end of his stay, I was like, listen, man, I've got a present for you. And I gave him it. And he went, oh, no, no. He goes, I don't want your Oscar Tony Jr. record. You got a cassette player, put it in a cassette. There's a, there's a D90. But you can have the vinyl. 
And he's like, look, he goes, that's the kind of you. I need to put it in my, my suitcase. It'll get broken or fucking bent or bashed or I'll get fucked up in transit. And I was a bit deflated, right? Because I wanted to give him this thing, right? And I'll mail it to you. And he went, oh, no, no. Then you need to go and you need to get like the brown mailer envelopes and put it in. You need to go to the post office. You need to send it. It'll cost you money. I won't be at home. Then I'll have to go to the post office to get it. And he went, just put it in a cassette, put it on a D90. And I was like, but do you not want the vinyl copy of the album? And he kind of lost his patience with me at that point. He went, he goes, what the fuck do you think I want to do with it? Only way I listen to it. And I was like, I was like, yeah. And I always stuck me as being like, People fetishize this stuff, and it's like the only way I listen to it. Mm. And you're like, if the, if the coolest guy in the world doesn't need vinyl records, I don't need them either. Mm. And that was the moment I just kind of was like, well, you know what? I only want to listen to it. I had thousands of records. It was maybe about seven years ago or something. And I was like, I can have tons of records and an okay hi fi, or I can get rid of all the records and have an amazing hi fi. But I know people who've got like record collections that are 50 grand, 50,000 pounds, 100,000 pounds are spent on records easily, right? People we know. They've got a fucking mortgage where they've got another room put on their house in the West End just to put their fucking records in. It's insanity. <laughs> you know, it's insanity. Not only you got 100,000 pounds worth of records, you've, get, you've added another 40 grand in your mortgage to fucking store this shit. <laughs> it makes no sense. You know, so anyway, I mean, so I went out, spent six thousand pounds on a second-hand hi-fi, which is a lot of money. It's a Lynn hi-fi, and it's like I don't know how much it's new twenty thousand pounds or something. It's great, it's really good. And I got Tidal, so you know, so you're streaming like twenty-four bit master audio, twenty pound a month, and you just get master quality music where you know, sketches in Spain by Miles Davis or whatever. And there's more music, and you don't have all this crap lying around your house. Why the fuck would people fucking buy records? It's just, it's, it's absolute fucking stupidity. <laughs> I'm not attached to it, which I'm quite happy about. And I, I don't want to be attached to stuff, do you know what I mean? You buy records, don't you? <laughs> to be honest, I don't buy too many. Yeah. You know, especially recently. But I do, I'm not totally against them. Like, I quite like them, but I, I think the environmental argument is something I, I really buy records. I buy, if it's something really special, I will buy it. I want to have that thing. I like the experience that people talk about. I actually do like that experience. I got my turntable set up again last week, actually, and just sitting late at night, me and Mary just sticking on a record. It's something really nice about it. I don't have to have everything on vinyl or buy the latest thing on vinyl. You know, I use I use streaming. That's that's kind of how I do. You know? I did the same thing. I've got a Lin on deck, which is a good record player. And I was like, okay, I'm going to have 100 vinyl records that are my favourite records ever. If I want to have that vinyl experience of putting on a vinyl, a record, yeah. you know, so it's like... Just, just the absolute stuff. classics, the absolute yeah. things you can't live without. All the records that I bought when I was a kid that were dead expensive that I can't get rid of, like Dan Penn's album that yeah. I spent £100 on in 1994, or a James Carr record that I spent £100 on 25 years ago, uh, Big Star records that were 50 Yeah, get, so or, or something like the John Phillips record, right? Mm-hmm. And I've got them, and I sit and, I, and then you, you put them on, you go, that's very good, and sit and you listen to it, and then I sit and go, and as great as our Lynn Sondek is, and it's a great record player, mm-hmm. it still sounds better on the streamer. So I'm like, what? It just it makes no fucking sense to sit and listen to something on vinyl 
when the streamer just sounds better. It just does. The whole format thing is that it's a nonsense conversation. You know, oh, vinyl sounds better than digital. It's a nonsense conversation. Mm-hmm. If you've got a really fucking great CD player, mm-hmm. use your really great CD player. If you've got a really great record player, use your really great record player. Or if you've got a really great streamer, use your really great streamer. You know, if you've got a £500 record player, it's going to sound pretty good. But if you've got a £2,000 CD player, it's going to sound better. It's just a fucking scientific fact. You know what I mean? I, I, I think a lot, a lot of it's in the beholder. And just yeah. like my, my system isn't very good for records, but it's got a warmth about it. I like the crackle. I like the, it's not hi fi in the slightest, just something nice about it. But what to analyze, just get really close to music. I'd maybe put good headphones on and listen to CD or something like that. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I mean, it doesn't really matter, you know, but it's, I suppose I'm just being kind of contrarian, maybe. You make a good point. I mean, people spending £100,000 on vinyl does seem a bit crazy, doesn't it? If that's how you get your rocks off, that's fine. Do you, I mean, but I'd rather spend in hats. That's personal. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy buying hats more than I enjoy buying records. Putting There's a 40 a grand mortgage on your house to store your hats is just as crazy, isn't it? I know. Probably. I'm, I'm kind of I pathologically don't like stuff, though. You just come back to Alex. I inherited a lot of Alex's stuff, you know, and I've just spent all my time trying to get rid of it because I don't want it. You know what I mean? It's just like, I got his guitar. I was like, what the fuck have I got this guitar for? I'm never going to play it, ever. So I gave was it, it his away. C-3-5? No, it was his, it was his, it was his red Les Paul that he played with Big Star. Oh. If you've got his Wikipedia page, he's playing a Les Paul Jr. Mm. I just used to give it to people and it would do the rounds. And I would always forget who had it. And my mate Barry would phone up and go, but you can't do that. It's like rock and roll history. And I'm like, it's a guitar. (laughs) It's a a guitar. And then he was like, well, why don't I buy you a brand new one and you give me that one and then I'll look after it and and I'll preserve it. And I'm like, no, it's a fucking guitar. It's meant to to be played. And if it gets lost, it gets lost. If it gets broken, it gets broken. I don't care. It's not important. And it's not important, you know. No, and I kind of like, I kind of like, I kind of like the idea that it, this guitar just kind of floats around, you know. Yeah. Because one day nobody's going to care. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter, you know. It's just a fucking guitar, and guitars should get played. Jason, what can I say? It's been absolutely brilliant. Thanks so much for yeah. coming on and sharing with us your lovely stories and life. Thanks for giving me my starting show business. <laughs> At last, it had to happen at some point. So, you know, no problem. You're welcome. And I know that this time next year, when we can all be in a room together, that there's enough stories that haven't been told today for a part two. Oh, yeah. A lot more stories. A lot of things I wanted to ask you, actually, especially the bees story. We'll get around to that sometime, hopefully. Yeah. There's a funny bit to that story. I'll tell you one day. But it's for another time. (laughs) Brilliant.